I'd like for you today, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7, verses 14 to 25. Professor C.F.D. Moole, the British exegete of yesteryear, although writing from a different context, aptly sums up the tension of the Christian life to which Paul speaks here in Romans 7. Listen to what he says. The strange thing about the new life claimed by Christians is that they have it and have it not. They have yet to become what, as they claim, they already are. Not surprisingly, this causes tension within and criticism without. Critics outside will say that Christians use the language of idealism, but that their lives sometimes do not measure up even to the lives of those who make no religious claims. They speak of the new life, but they do not seem to have gotten as far as the best of the old. Christians themselves, correspondingly, find that the hymns and prayers they use and the sermons they listen to express a level of experience far above their actual feelings or attitudes or experiences, so that if they are conscientious and sensitive, they are in danger of suffering from a chronic sense of guilt for falling below their own professions. One may argue that the sense of guilt is wrong, but that a tension should exist is inevitable. It is due to nothing less than the Incarnation. Those who believe that in Jesus of Nazareth, God's Word, His self-expression, His utterance, became flesh in a unique way, must expect to feel with exceptional keenness the dilemma of a kind of amphibian belonging in two realms at once. The Christian claim, if taken seriously, means perplexity for the historian, disturbance for the ethicist, and pain for the believer. He has been delivered from the dominion of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And yet, and yet, because he has a physical body and feelings, he remains vulnerable to what in Galatians is called the present evil age. So he is torn into two directions. The preacher tells him that what he could not do for himself has already been done for him by God, and that he has only to accept with gratitude the finished work of Christ. And yet, the same preacher is always exhorting him to do better and telling him that his performance does not match up to his calling. In a nutshell, the Christian command is a perplexing one. Become what you are. It is illogical. It is paradoxical. It is tension-causing. Yet, it is inescapable if the Incarnation is a reality and if history and trans-history are really interlocked 
as the Incarnation reveals them to be. The horns of this dilemma, the dilemma of an ethic which is through and through religious, are a permanent part of the Christian existence in this life. Indeed, if the growing pains are never felt, it is doubtful whether the new life has begun. Professor Mool, in a couple of paragraphs, has really captured this tension we call the Christian life. We are forever on a journey to becoming what we are and becoming what we will become in glory. But in the here and now, where the tension is real and perplexing and strenuous, we must fight the battle and discern what it is that we must do in order to become what we will become and what we are. And this is essentially what is being described for us in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 25. You follow along as I read. Romans 7, 14 to 25. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then... I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I told you last time that Paul gives us in this paragraph three subsections in verses 14 to 25, which lay out the outline points of our study of this passage, and they begin with Pauline statements of fact. Do you see them there? Verse 14, we know. Verse 18, I know. Verse 21, so I find. And you see within those three subsections, those links, you have three declarations of discernment about Paul's own Christian life, which I would say to you and to me as well, 
should also be a set of discerning declarations about our own maturing Christian life. And what are those declarations? Well, number one, in verses 14 to 17, the law of God is good. I am very sinful. Verses 18 to 20, no good dwells in my flesh. Evil is always present with me. And verses 21 to 25, my mind delights in the law of God. The flesh serves the law of sin. Three discerning sets of declaration about this tension of the already but not yet of the Christian life. Last time we began the first of those three subsections, which was the idea that the law of God is good, and yet we ourselves as Christians are very sinful. And we initially started to unpack the meaning of Paul's first foray into the declaration of his own Christian life, which is contained for us in verse 14. Look at it with me. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. You remember what we covered last time? We covered the significance of Paul's statement that the law of God is spiritual. And it is spiritual because it comes to us from the Holy Spirit, and therefore it must be inherently spiritual, and if inherently spiritual, then it is holy and righteous and good, which is exactly what he says it is according to verse 12. The law is holy, he says, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. You also recall that we covered that first phrase in that sort of antithetical look. I agree that the law is spiritual, but when I look at my life as mirrored against the law of God, I see that I'm very sinful. He says in a phrase, I am of the flesh. And I indicated to you what is both being said there and not said there, given the definition of the word flesh. What Paul is describing is his own discernment about what I called contemporaneous carnality. That is, Paul is both spiritual and carnal in contemporaneous terms at the same time. Now, he's a spiritual man. It's not that he's both spiritual and natural constitutionally. He is by constitution. He is by character. He is by category a spiritual man. But he also has still in his mind, in his heart, even in the outworking of his physical body, carnality, fleshiness, sinfulness, sinful tendencies, sinful desires, sinful motives. Spiritual men, like I described in 1 Corinthians 2, are those who are categorically Christians. Natural men, according to 1 Corinthians 2, are by category and constitution non-Christians. But do you realize that even with those who are spiritual, even with those who are living in and through the realm of the Holy Spirit, do at times very carnal things? Of course we know that. That's the experience of our own lives, isn't it? Of course we affirm that. Even within the realm of the spiritual dimension, even those who respond spiritually, even those who can only respond on a spiritual plane can have thoughts and commit acts which are carnal or fleshly. 
That is to say, spiritual people sometimes do very wicked things. And when Paul says he is of the flesh, he isn't saying that he is a natural man, a man in the flesh, but that he's of the flesh. He's of the flesh in the sense that he's not yet fully and completely redeemed, including the redemption of his body, which he cries out for in Romans 8, including the whole of creation, moaning and groaning and crying out for the redemption, the whole of redemption, total redemption. Here in Romans 7.14, when he compares his life actions to the perfect standard of the law of God, even as a regenerate man, a man for whom Christ's sacrifice has atoned for his sins, yet he realizes his continuing earthbound plight. He knows he's a Christian, forever removed from the penalty of sin, forever removed from the penalty of sin's curse, and he knows that one day he will ultimately be delivered from the very presence of sin itself, but for now, in the tension of the middle of the already but not yet, he still does fleshy things because he's still tied to this earth and its temptations. And do you see what Paul else describes about himself in verse 14? It's where we left off last time. He follows up that phrase, I am of the flesh, with this provocative phrase, sold under sin. Sold under sin. Again, as I pointed out last time, some of you might be saying, well, that sounds so much like an unbeliever who's in the bondage of his sin and who's therefore outside of Christ. This sounds like a natural man sold under sin. That's why, by the way, some people have difficulty believing that a genuine believer wrote this and could speak of himself in this way. But as I taught you last time, understand what's really going on here. Remember that Paul is speaking of sin in the personification of an earthly master who dictates what the slave will do and how that slave will obey. And when you see your life as mirrored up against the spiritual standard of God's holy law, even as a Christian, you see your sin as though it still has mastery over you. You see the weight of your sin. You believe yourself to be captivated under its sway. But I want you to notice something about what Paul says here. Notice something that he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I am in the flesh sold out to sin. He doesn't say that. That would be more the language of a natural man. Sold out to sin. That would indeed be saying something very different than what he is saying. What he says, rather, in fact, is I am of the flesh... I'm still tied to this world, still tied to this earth. While I'm a spiritual man, I remain in this earth-bound flesh, sold under sin. Not sold out to sin, sold under sin. In effect, he's saying, I'm not sold out to it, but as long as I remain in this world, and when compared to the standard of the Spirit of God, sin still clings to me. It's as though... It still owns me. Now, it doesn't own me, 
But because of the encroaching nature of sin in my life, it sometimes seems as though I'm sold under its pervasive influence. I could give you an illustration of what I'm talking about here from Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher of a bygone day, as he was describing being delivered from our sin from Romans 6. You remember in Romans 6 where it talked about the fact that we were delivered over now to a slavery to righteousness and that we've been delivered from a slavery to sin? Listen to what he says. Good, good illustration. We could use again the familiar illustration about the slaves that were set at liberty after the American Civil War. There were many thousands of people then who had been born as slaves and brought up as slaves and who had lived as slaves. They had got into the habit of thinking as slaves. But the American Civil War settled the question of slavery and slavery was abolished. However, many years afterwards, many of those former slaves and especially the old ones kept on forgetting that they were at liberty. They had to learn to reckon themselves to be no longer slaves. And it took some time because all men tend to act according to habits and customs and practices which have been long ingrained. The way to get rid of all this evil is to tell yourself what is true about yourself. That you are no longer a slave, but that you are a free man. Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, That is what I mean when I say that the Christian no longer sins as a slave, but he sins as a free man. And that is why I say, does Lloyd-Jones, he is always a fool when he sins. You know what he means by that? You're a fool when you sin because you don't have to. You don't have to sin. The compulsion is gone. He says, it is he who now yields voluntarily. You see, before Christ, you were sinning, as it were, involuntarily. You were just doing that which was consistent with your nature. I often have people say to me, can you believe the acts of so-and-so non-Christian? And I can say, yes, of course I can. Because they're just doing that which is consistent with their nature. But a Christian who sins, they're sinning, as it were, voluntarily, even under the life of free grace. He says his whole position, his whole condition has changed this Christian man. But I must go on, he says, and add even to that. And it is an essential part of this teaching. Nothing and no one, not even the devil himself, can ever make a Christian a slave again to sin and its consequences. But notice this. We are dead indeed unto sin to its realm, to its rule, to its reign, to its power, and then he says this, very, very well said, I may be conscious of its activity in my body, but I am not under its dominion. Catch that? Catch what he's saying? We as Christians are dead to the natural realm of existence. It can no longer enslave us as it once did, like the illustration of the slaves in the old south in the 1800s. Nothing and no one, not even Satan himself, can ever enslave us again to sin's mastery. We've been forever emancipated from its penalty. But did you hear that last statement? No, I'm not under its dominion, but I must be conscious of its activity. You see, in Romans 6, 
Paul's saying, you've been delivered from its enslavement. Romans 7, but you best be conscious of its activity. You best be aware of the doctrine of sin. Are you consciously aware of the activity of sin in your own life? Are you aware? Sin is real. And sin still plagues, still hangs on, still clings, even when we've been delivered from its ghastly penalty. Do you fight this evil sin in your own life? Do you find, as Paul describes here, sin as reprehensible and repugnant to you? Remember the point Paul is making. The law of God is good. I am very sinful. How does he further describe his own sinfulness? Well, it's almost like this. Verse 14 is sort of like a header. And verses 15 to 25 explain to us, exposits for us exactly what Paul means when he says, the law is good, I'm very sinful. It's as though he takes verse 14 as a title and he says, now let me explain to you what I mean by this idea that I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Well, look at verse 15. This is the tension of the Christian life. Don't miss it. I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. He's he's essentially expositing what it means to be sinful. He's going to describe for us throughout the rest of this chapter the nature, even the pathology of the sinfulness of the believer. And when he describes autobiographically his own actions, he says this, I just don't understand the wickedness of my own heart. Or maybe even better yet, I understand it too well. I understand it too well. See, Paul's looking discerningly. He's a mature believer and he says, I don't understand it and yet I do. I I don't understand why I do it, but then I, I understand the nature of it, the hideousness of it, the graphic nature of it. I don't understand why I do what I do, because when I do what I don't want, I recognize the law of God is, is good. It's good. It slams me. It slays me. It shows me the mirror of the perfect character of God. And when I don't do what I really want to do, I see that principle working in my heart. The difference between my redeemed love for Jesus Christ and His law and the utter wickedness that is sin. No wonder a man like that says, Oh, wretched man that I am. He has a keen sense of his own faults and failures. He has a clear grasp of his own sinfulness. But the most disturbing and the most debilitating aspect of it all is the doing of what he doesn't want to do and the doing of the things that he hates. You have that experience, Christian? 
you, you look at your life, maybe even after a time of spiritual impoverishing, and you say to yourself, why do I do that? What is it about me that motivates me to do the very thing I hate? Why do I do the things I do? I, I don't want to do them. I, I delight in my inner man, the law of God, which is the perfect reflection of God's holy character. The law compels me to be holy above reproach. And I desire to be like the perfect fulfillment of the law, Jesus Christ Himself. Being progressively conformed to His very image, saying no to sin and yes to righteousness. But I find this principle also which is at work in me, which takes me to a contrary place of disobedience to God and His law. It motivates me to fulfill my own desires. It seduces me into thinking that what I really want is better than what God offers me. It lies to me. It throws me off course. It tries to make me think, as Paul will talk later, that good is evil and evil is good. there any any mature christian realizes what i'm saying and as i said when i use the word maturity it's just a relative term we're all on relative levels of immaturity and maturity in the christian life but the person who says and characterizes sin the way i just did is a maturing believer sin is lying to me it's deceiving me. Listen to what John Piper says on this very subject in his, in his book, The Purifying Power of Living by Faith and Future Grace. Listen to what he says. The aim of this book, Future Grace, is to emancipate human hearts from servitude to the fleeting pleasures of sin. You know, I like books like that. I like books that tell me how to be emancipated from serving the fleeting pleasures of sin. And then he says this, most profoundly, sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. Sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. No one sins out of duty, he says. You know, like the person that says, well, I guess I better get up and sin today. Really don't want to do it, but it's my duty. And so therefore I'm going to do it. No, no one does that. No one sins out of duty. We sin, he says, because it holds out some promise of happiness. That promise enslaves us until we believe that God is more to be desired than life itself. Which means that the power of sin's promise is broken by the power of God's. All that God promises to be for us in Jesus stands over against what sin promises to be for us without Him. That's the battle. That's the tension. Sin allures. It deceives. It tells me that there's some promise of happiness just beyond the rainbow. Go there. Pursue that. Have fun. It'll be great. And then I go to that pot at the end of the rainbow and it's been a bait and switch. And I find out that sin is not 
that lovely promise of happiness at all. I've been deceived. I've been lied to. Piper says later in the book, failing to be satisfied with all that God has for us in Jesus is the root of all sin. Satan knows this. And it shapes his whole strategy of how to get people to sin. All the sinful states of our hearts are owing to unbelief in God's superabounding future grace. All our sin comes from failing to be satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. Misplaced shame, anxiety, despondency, covetousness, lust, bitterness, intolerance, pride. These are all sprouts from the root of unbelief in the promises of God. He's right. And the Christian is just like that. He knows that the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. He knows that God's promises are absolutely and utterly better than Satan's lofty but ill-conceived promises and sin's own promises, even the sin indwelling sin within my own heart. But at certain times, and it seems at certain seasons, Genuine Christians choose rather to believe Satan's lies and sin's deceptions as over against God's very word of promise. God says, I promise. You do this and you will do well. You do this and you will be blessed. And I hear that other siren sound of Satan or his hosts Or my own indwelling sin that says, no, 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 this is the better promise. God is withholding from you, just like the garden. And when I bite on that hook, I realize that dainty little morsel wasn't the greater promise at all. It was actually sin disguised as promise and it didn't fulfill it didn't give me the joy that I was looking for it didn't give me the the satisfaction I was longing for it didn't gratify me can you not relate to this do you not also say with Paul I do not understand my own actions I I mean I do but I don't I mean that I I want to do the right thing in the Christian life. But sin indwells me. And it deceives me. And it says to me, you can have it with no implications. But it's a lie. It's a lie. And I do not do what I want. And I find myself doing the very thing that I hate. And he's not absolving himself of responsibility there. Don't get Paul wrong. What he's saying is, I see the great depths of my sin and it grieves me as long as I'm contained in this body of death. Sin will hang on to me like rotting flesh on a corpse. And I've got to figure out a way to get it off of me so that my spirit can fly free. 
That's why he says in the latter part of this passage, thanks be to God. And he says in Romans 8, he's going to deliver the whole of creation from the moaning and the groaning of being encased in sin. Oh, how I long to be delivered from this life. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And in verse 16 of Romans 7, he goes right back to speaking of the goodness of the law of God when compared to what happens when the law comes up against his sinfulness. Notice what he says, verse 16. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Now, I want you to see something here in what Paul is actually affirming about himself. Notice in the first part of the verse that he says, if I do what I do not want. Don't miss that. This is only, beloved, what a true, regenerate person can say. Put the emphasis on this part. What I do not want. That's a regenerate man speaking. What I do not want. I don't want that. Oh, it may be said of some non-Christians that they do not want to do certain societal or social wrongs. But in the inner man, they can't say that. They can't say that. In the very depths of their soul, they really want to do what they want to do, which is against the will of the living God. That's what he says in Romans 8. Look at Romans 8, verse 7. This is the description of the unregenerate. Romans 8, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh. See, your mindset is on the flesh. It's not that you are just saying, I realize that I am of flesh. I'm still tied to this earthbound world. I understand that. But now Paul says, I'm telling you, if you are a person that has a mindset on the flesh, you are totally and constitutionally and categorically having your mindset on the flesh, what does he say? It is hostile to God. Hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. And Paul says in Romans 7, in my inner man, I delight in the law of God. You see the difference between the two? He says if you're having your mindset on the flesh... You're hostile to God and you do not submit to God. Why? Because indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh, characterized by the flesh, constitutionally fleshy, the natural man cannot please God. But a Christian, a regenerate, Christ-loving person truly wants from the very depths of their soul to please God and to perform God's will. And that's the tension. Because... I'm endeavoring to do it, and when I don't do it, it grieves me, and I see the fact that I'm motivated sometimes by sin's fleeting pleasure, and I say, wretched man that I am. And when I see this, I fully concur with God's holy law that it is good. See, it isn't the law's fault. Don't blame the law. Law is holy and righteous and good. How much more plain could he state it? The law is the instrument that God uses to drive us to despair so that we cry out to Him at our inability to please God perfectly through our 
Obedience to the holy, righteous, and good law of God. Can't do it. We find that we cannot live out the totality of His law and we're driven to the realization that we are done, we are finished, we're headed for certain doom. And then God marvelously shows us through the miracle of regeneration that it is Christ Himself who frees us from the law's demands. You see, that's why He delights in the inner man of the law of God because when He sees that, He sees Christ. Sees Christ's deliverance. That's why he says in the latter part of this very passage, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Implied, who will deliver me from this body of death? You want to see this? Look in your Bibles at Galatians chapter 3. This is brought to us so marvelously here. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3.10. What I just described is so marvelously echoed here. Galatians 3.10 For all, Galatians 3.10 For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. You see, you try to do it in your flesh by being obedient to the full mechanism of the work of the law. Can't do it. And if you rely on works of the law, you're under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Boy, that's a standard. You can't do it. Now, it is evident, he said, that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Exactly what Paul said in Romans 1.17. But the law is not of faith, rather. The one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us in our stead, on our behalf. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And Christ was hanged on a tree. Therefore Christ was cursed not of His own sin, but for ours, so that in Christ Jesus, verse 14, the blessing of Abraham might come to the pagans so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Verse 23, Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned. You see, it had us It just exacerbated the sinfulness of our soul until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian, our tutor, our schoolmaster to drive us to Christ. And until Christ came, we were under its grip. This sin of our lives, which the law showed us so evidently, But Christ came so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, I don't have to live up to the standard of the law of God as though I were doing it for my own salvation. You see, the law of God is... Is good in that sense. 
Because it's used by God to reveal sin to us, and in revealing sin to us, it drives us to Christ. It's that tutor. It's that schoolmaster. It pushes us to see the radical evil in our own hearts. And when we do, we're seeing ourselves as hopeless and helpless until Christ comes to rescue us from the law's curse. Look at chapter 3, verse 19, that part that I skipped over. Why then the law? Why then the law? What was it there for? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promises had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But you see, it can't. But the Scripture, verse 22, imprisoned everything under sin. The law, the commandments, the Scripture which contained such through the angels as intermediaries. The Scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. You want to be delivered from the law? The law just stirs up all that's wicked within you by birth and by choice. And you say, I've got to be delivered from that. And the Bible says Jesus Christ is that deliverance because He was the one who perfectly fulfilled the law's demands. And He became a curse for sinners. And when you recognize and acknowledge your sinfulness, you are saying to God Almighty, I agree with you. By the way, that's what the word confess means. Hamalageo, to say the same thing as God is saying about my sin. I confess, I say the same thing that you say about my sin. It has taken me away from the holy law of God. It's taken me away from perfection. It's taken me away from the standard. I agree. I agree, Lord. I need Christ. Don't blame the law. Look what he says in verse 17 of Romans 7. So now, it is no longer I who do it. This is the, this is the culprit, but sin that dwells within me. That's the culprit. The truest part of me identifies with God and His law and I delight in it, but I find the principle at work in my heart that is evil, the ugly beast of my soul. It isn't God to blame. It isn't the law that I blame for my sin. It isn't others that I blame for my sinful thoughts and actions. It is the sin that dwells within me, indwelling sin. That's the culprit. It's the monster within my otherwise dutiful heart. As we close this morning, listen to a Puritan description of sin. Who is the hoary sexton that digs man a grave? Who is the painted temptress that steals his virtue? Who is the murderess that destroys his life? Who is this sorceress that first deceives and then damns his soul? Sin. 
Who with icy breath blights the fair blossoms of youth? Who breaks the hearts of parents? Who brings old men's gray hairs with sorrow to the grave? Sin. Who by a more hideous metamorphosis than Ovid even fancied changes gentle children into vipers, tender mothers into monsters, and their fathers into worse than Herods, the murderers of their own innocence? Sin. Who casts the apple of discord on household hearts? Who lights the torch of war and bears it blazing over trembling lands? Who by divisions in the church rends Christ's seamless robe? Sin. Who is that Delilah that sings the Nazarite asleep and delivers up the strength of God into the hands of the uncircumcised? Who, winning smiles on her face, honeyed flattery on her tongue, stands in the door to offer the sacred rites of hospitality and when suspicion sleeps, treacherously pierces our temples with a nail. What fair siren is this, who seated on a rock by a deadly pool, smiles to deceive, sings to lure, kisses to betray, and flings her arm around our neck to leap with us into perdition. Sin. Who turns the soft and gentlest heart to stone? Who hurls reason from her lofty throne and impels sinners mad as gathering swine down the precipice into the lake of fire? Sin. O Lord, that is what sin could and would do to the believer if it had the slightest opportunity. Sin wreaks havoc in our soul. Even the souls of the regenerate. That is why we long for the redemption of our bodies. We delight in the law of God, in our inner man, but the sin of our hearts violates our consciences. Sin is devastating to us. Please, Lord, like the Apostle Paul, make us ever more sensitive to our sin. Create in us such a holy hatred for it and the desire to cast it away from us forever. Make us see sin for what it really is. That seductress, that murderer, that evil, hideous monster that desires to deceive us, and if it could, to slay us. O wretched men and women that we are, our only hope is in Jesus Christ the Lord, who will one day deliver us completely from this our indwelling sin. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.